All right. Well, let's go ahead and begin. If you haven't been, um, if you haven't been in the class over the past several weeks, this is a talking points class, and today we're covering uh, pornography. So we spent the first several weeks um, doing kind of foundation building. What is a Christian worldview? Engaging a secularized society, and then um, applying that to listening to the news. And then this second um, kind of big segment of the class, we've been covering a variety of sexual issues. Uh, so the ma- major visible fault line between the secular and the Christian worldview is sexuality. This is where the most contentious uh, discussions have come up. And this morning we'll be talking about uh, an issue that's maybe politically less heated uh, than transgender issues or homosexuality, yet actually I think is causing the greater harm in the Christian community, uh, the presence and use of pornography. Our culture is saturated with uh, pornography. Um, such that even mainstream movies um, are more and more containing regularly pornographic scenes. So we live in what's been called a pornified culture, um, which is the first thing I'd like to address. But first of all, a definition of pornography. One author defined pornography as um, that which consists of visual materials containing explicit displays of sexual organs or sexual activities, whether real or simulated, in order to arouse erotic rather than aesthetic sensations. Or more briefly, pornography is material that depicts erotic behavior intended to cause sexual arousal. So are, are you viewing something or reading something to cause sexual arousal? And, and I, So that's it's even different, not just that it was produced with that intent, but kind of the intent of the consumer as well something I would add to that. Uh, so I think the fine distinctions about whether you, you viewed something or read something on you know, a site dedicated to pornography or a magazine dedicated to pornography are somewhat irrelevant um, in regards to Christian discipleship. Um, so Game of Thrones or um, Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, some of these kind of more mainstream movies or shows that contain a lot of um, sexuality, nudity, things like that, would be kind of low-hanging fruit. Probably a lot of Christians would agree that's unhelpful uh, to be viewing that kind of stuff. And yet, um, yet it, uh, you know, there's, there's scenes all over uh, lots of different movies that maybe would be considered more uh, debatable or there'd be more disagreement on whether to watch these things or not um, that have scenes containing sexuality and nudity in them. So then the, the question is, you know, you're about partly about your intent in watching these things. Because if, if you're watching something with the intent of sexual arousal or, um, you know, curiosity and kind of that particular piece, it's really not much different than viewing just that two-minute clip, let's say, on a, on a site dedicated to pornography. Um, because the issue is about uh, your heart in that matter. So we're not so much concerned with whether to statistically count something as technically pornography as much as we are to identify sin patterns um, in our lives and try to put those things to death. So with that said, then, um, a pornified culture, what does this look like? Well, pornography is, is widespread. It's ubiquitous. So I could give you lots of statistics at this point, uh, but I'm not really sure that's necessary to convince you that um, pornography is, is widespread, the consumption of it is widespread. And there don't seem to be significant differences between those who don't identify as Christians and those who do. Marriage doesn't seem to alter the statistics either. As many married people look at pornography as those who are unmarried. 
pastors use it as much as parishioners. And men seem to use it more than women, though the number of women using it is increasing as well. On the internet, you can find pornography all over the place. I've heard it referred to as the AAA engine of pornography. Affordability, it's basically free in most cases. Accessibility, it's just a click away. And anonymity, uh, there's no shame because no one knows about it. Um, and studies are showing that even age is less of a factor than it once was. Many kids are seeing pornography before they're even 10 years old. So there's a new generation, not the millennials, but the post-millennials. This would be um, the I generation, as one author called them. It's, it's uh, characterized by children who have grown up in an immersion in technology and social media. And uh, these, these kids, this, this younger generation, are finding pornography at earlier and earlier ages, whether intentionally or not. And kids, in particular, are getting pornography in new ways. Um, so many um, high school students and middle school students are seeing porn for the first time through social media, uh, not through going to websites, but through things like Snapchat, and, and not getting it from porn stars, but from people they know. Um, the phenomenon of sexting, for instance. So as one author said, porn doesn't have a demographic. It goes across all demographics. And this, this is uh, bad news because pornography has many consequences. Pornography is, is dangerous. And you don't have to be prudish or Christian to recognize this. You know, there's a, a lot of books uh, from... Uh, not from a Christian perspective, that um, describe how pornography is damaging our relationships, our families, and our lives. Increasingly, um, researchers are realizing that pornography is becoming like a twisted sex education for a younger generation. They're growing up seeing lots of pornography um, and at the same time not having conversations, real-life conversations, about actual sex uh, with reliable adults. Um, so they, um, y- the younger you are, the more likely you are to believe that um, coercive and uncommon sexual activity is actually acceptable and is actually more common than it really is. Uh, and partly for this reason, the Utah State Legislature uh, declared pornography a public health crisis, which is an idea that's gained momentum even outside of a Mormon-dominated state. Um, because it, this is quoting from that piece of legislation, it perpetuates a sexually toxic environment, contributes to the hypersexualization of teens, creates sexual templates that normalize coercive and abusive sexual behavior, and is harmful to women and children in particular. And not only is it damaging to individuals, families, our lives, and society at large, but it's also it's, it's addictive. It's called a process addiction, and like so many addictions, it takes people deeper and deeper, uh, more immersed into it, uh, more hardcore, more, more deviant, things like that. Um, so it has some of the classic symptoms of addiction, chemical responses in the brain that, that function like a, a reward mechanism, especially when it's paired with uh, masturbation. And people uh, will continue to consume pornography then despite the harm that they know it may cause to themselves, their relationships, even their employment, and so on. Uh, So pornography is is addictive. It's an enslaving thing. Augustine um, 
in the fourth century uh, described himself as a sex addict. He wasn't writing in English, but that's basically what he called himself, a sex addict. And he described um, those dynamics in his life this way. He said, from a perverse will came lust, and slavery to lust became a habit, and the habit being constantly yielded to became a necessity. These were like links hanging each to the other, and they held me fast in a hard slavery. This is the dynamic that many experience uh, in regards to pornography. It's, it's enslaving so that those um, who are immersed in it find themselves unable. They're almost compulsively uh, going to it. All of these things, and yet pornography is a big lie. Uh, porn looks like beautiful people having a great time. Beautiful people having a great time. And that's a lie. And, and uh, if, we could, if we could, as one author said, kind of pull back, look beyond the frame and see kind of this whole industry that's going on, you know, the, the lights, the camera, the scripts, the, the actors, the women throwing up between scenes, the drug addictions and uh, miserable lifestyles that associate those who are in the industry, uh, it would be less appealing to us. There's a book called The Porn Myth, exposing the reality behind the fantasy of pornography. It's a fantasy world. It's not real. And, uh, and for those struggling, it's, I think, particularly helpful to, uh, remind, to be reminded of that. So how do we think about pornography from a biblical worldview? That's what we're doing in this class. It's kind of our main project is just to take these different um, uh, talking points and, and apply a biblical worldview to them. So the biblical worldview is the biblical storyline uh, used as a framework through which to view things. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration as a framework from which to, to view any particular topic. So creation. Uh, Creation tells us that sex is a beautiful thing. Sex is a beautiful thing. Genesis 1, we're told, in in the image of God, uh, he created them male and female. And that distinction tells us something about God. Uh, God is three persons in one Godhead. Intimate unity of three persons within one Godhead. And, And marriage, similarly, is two people becoming one flesh. And specifically in the sexual relationship within marriage then, uh, when the two become one flesh, we find the closest analog in creation to the Trinity and the intimate unity of the Trinity. Male and female together then reflect the beauty of the Godhead. Um, So sex is is a beautiful thing. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the intention or the direction of this sexuality that God gives is specifically for procreation. Um, So through sex, then, uh, humanity populates the earth with more image bearers who will be faithful stewards of God's creation. It's part of God's beautiful design uh, for the universe and his purposes in it. And then in chapter 2, we have that same story of human origins again with a little more detail. I'll just read it again. I know we've gone through this um, several times over the past several weeks, Um, but here it is again. And the rib that the Lord God took from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So, again, sex is for this one flesh kind of intimacy, naked and not ashamed, reflecting that intimate, uh, intimate unity within the Trinity. And part of the blessing and goodness of um, sex in the created design, then, is this, this sexual differentiation, but also the sexual relationship of the man and the woman. And this also is part of God's image in man, the capacity for this. Like God, then, our relationships in general and our sexual relationships within marriage in particular ought to be self-giving, ought to be marked by self-giving, not self-taking. Um, so Paul puts it rather bluntly in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So sex is beautiful. It's for procreation. It's self-giving in nature. Um, in his letter to Timothy, Paul says, this is 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that there were some people who had been devoting themselves to the teaching of demons. Uh, and he warns Timothy about this. And what, what was this demonic teaching there at the church in Ephesus? Uh, these people were teaching uh, that, they, that, well, they forbid marriage and they were requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be enjoyed. So Paul's remedy to this um, demonic teaching um, he says they're, they're denying things God created to be enjoyed, marriage and specifically sexuality within marriage and all the foods that God created to be in, enjoyed. And so, so Paul says everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul implies then that sex within marriage is made holy uh, by the hearts of those who engage in it, hearts that are devoted to God. So it's, it's a gift that should be enjoyed. It's something God created is good. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament in particular emphasizes this point. You think of Song of Solomon, um, some of the passages in Ecclesiastes and uh, Proverbs um, affirming the goodness of sexuality. And then in the fall... Uh, of Adam and Eve, all of these good, beautiful, self-giving, um, pleasurable kind of dynamics are uh, distorted and shattered. And the predominant characteristic of the fall is an exchanging of truth about God for a lie, uh, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator is the exchange, as Paul puts it there in Romans 1. And uh, Eve does that by, she, she makes her desire for the fruit uh, Supreme, you know, and the, the fruit, as we've mentioned, it was beautiful, it was good to be desired, uh, but she sets her desire up as God. She obeys her desire for the fruit rather than obeying um, the clear commands of God and the, the Creator's intent. So her desire is the will to be obeyed rather than God's desire. This is, this is a fundamental dynamic of the fall um, that Paul kind of details out with a variety of examples in Romans 1. And pornography would be another example of this kind of thing. Humans chasing um, uh, passions of the flesh, as Paul calls it elsewhere, uh, rather than uh, yielding to and submitting to the will of the creator and his design. Redemption. Um, so how do people who have redeemed then who have been redeemed, um, how, do, how do they um, respond to this kind of thing? You know, knowing this um, tendency or dynamic of fallen people 
uh, to reject the creator and indulge selfish passions? How do we redeem people who, are, who have been liberated from the enslaving power of sin? How do they live? Well, Ephesians uh, 5, Paul says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Those who have been liberated, freed from the enslaving power of sin, um, there's a certain appropriate kind of lifestyle for God's holy people then. And he says here it's a lifestyle that includes not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Hebrews 13.4 puts it this way, let, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor among all. You know, a quick assessment kind of summary statement about the goodness of God in giving marriage and sexuality within it. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, again, a, a clear, concise statement of, of the parameters uh, for that sexuality, that it's uh, w- within marriage. So this is, this is kind of the, the Christian ethic. It was what Christians were trying to walk out in the second century, where it would have been as much an oddity then as it is today. Uh, and yet in the letter to Diognetus, a, a letter describing Christianity in the second century, uh, the author said, they share their meals but not their sexual partners. And that distinguished them uh, from the culture in which they lived. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches a religious uh, or a, um, uh, a purity that's even stricter than the religious leaders of the day. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this principle applies for women looking at men as well. It goes in both directions. The point that Jesus is making there is that God's standard is impossibly high. So he concludes that whole section, the end of um, chapter uh, 6, I think it is, saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect an impossibly high standard. But at the same time, Jesus tells us that he fulfilled that standard. Uh, In uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 14, I think it is, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to uh, abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law, knowing that we could not do that. So in Acts, uh, when Paul is preaching, I'm getting all my details mixed up. It might have been Peter preaching because earlier in Acts. He says, um, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him you have been freed from everything by which you could not be freed under the law of Moses. Under the law, there could not be freedom, but in Christ, because he's fulfilled the law, there can be freedom, specifically the freedom of forgiveness. Let it be known that forgiveness has been proclaimed to you through this man, uh, Jesus Christ. So Jesus fulfills the law, thus making possible uh, the freedom of forgiveness for us. So as Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. Or as Paul reworded that, um, sorry, as Tim Chester reworded that verse, God made Jesus, who never looked with lust, to be a porn addict for us, 
so that in him we might become sexually pure. You know, Jesus has taken our place, our sin upon him, and given us his righteousness. In this way, he has liberated uh, his people, redeemed people. This is the dynamic of redemption. He has liberated us from the enslaving power of sin and from the future penalty of sin. So Romans 6, 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old nature was crucified with Christ on the cross in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Um, So we are are no longer enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And then a few verses later, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. You truly are dead to sin. Those who have been redeemed, your old nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. Um, So he recommends, so you must consider yourselves, think of yourselves in this way, as people who are dead to sin. Um, And so in Romans 8.13 then, uh, he says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit is the power, not just thinking that you're dead from sin, which is true and we ought to do, uh, but being empowered by the Spirit to put sin to death. So then as redeemed people, we've been liberated. We can't fulfill the law. Jesus has done that for us so we can stop trying. You can remind yourselves when you're sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet you also take the next step and work hard by the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. So these are some of the dynamics of being a redeemed people, not indulging the passions of the flesh, but rather um, obeying the intent and design of the Creator in, in regards to sexuality. And then restoration. Uh, in pre- previous weeks, we've already pointed out that um, there's, we're told little about how our sexuality will find fulfillment in um, a restored universe, you know. In the end, when God puts all things right and kind of that final day that Joel is talking about, um, what does our sexuality look like? We don't know a whole lot. You know, there's every indication that we will remain gendered beings. You know, Jesus comes back. He's kind of a template. His resurrection body is identifiable in continuity with what it was before. So we can expect that um, at the final resurrection. Uh, But Jesus says that there won't be marriage. We won't be given in marriage. Um, So our sexuality won't be used in the same way uh, within marriage that it is now. Um, Beyond that, it's hard to say. It's it's somewhat speculative. But we are told that we will see God face to face and that we'll become like him because we'll we'll know him uh, and be known by him. So one thing you could say is that there will be an intimacy uh, with God and with one another in heaven that's elevated beyond the experience even of, of the original paradise. There will be an intimacy with God and with others elevated even beyond the original paradise. You know, they, they Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed, and we will regain that kind of naked and unashamed experience uh, in heaven. So sex will be consummated then, not just in the sense of sexual activity, but rather, uh, but rather in the sense that sex has always been symbolic from the beginning of that intimacy of unity within the Trinity. Sex has always been symbolic of that and, uh, and, and of the human longing for transcendent intimacy with God, both of which will be fulfilled in our understanding and experience uh, in the final day. And in this sense, the original intent for our sexuality will find its, its fulfillment. 
So all of that creation, fall, redemption, restoration applied to the issue of sexuality then has to be kind of held up in our minds and hearts as, the, as God's beautiful intent uh, and vision for our sexuality and use of it. Uh, pornography then, um, both in the strict sense that we defined it, but also in this, the general sense, there's just all kinds of impurity, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5. Uh, pornography is always a twisting of this beautiful vision that God has for our sexuality. So let's turn then to thinking about a Christian strategy uh, for walking out the biblical worldview. You know, how do we align ourselves, our individual actions, and our collective uh, efforts? How do we align ourselves with the biblical storyline? Because We've evidently been having a very hard time doing this in regards to pornography. Statistically, um, the Christian church is made up of largely people who have seen pornography. Again, just statistically, most people in this room have seen pornography. And a lot of people have seen a lot of pornography. Um, And that reality is not going away. Porn is becoming more pervasive, not less. So that AAA engine... Uh, that I mentioned, affordability, accessibility, anonymity, is pressing forward, not being restrained. So we've got to think together as Christians about a strategy um, for reducing those statistics, you know, for doing better in this uh, together overall as, as a church. So what might some of those ideas be? Well, first of all, I think we need to talk about sexuality in general and about pornography in particular. This, this has to be an ongoing part of our conversations, uh, not an off-limits issue. So there probably should be some parameters for personal disclosure in this regard. You know, um, uh, how and where do you discuss it? How transparent should you be on this issue? Um, what are some appropriate ways of sharing uh, this information. I think some general ideas there would be, you know, same, talking about this in relationships with people of the same sex would be more helpful than in mixed groups. Um, smaller groups rather than larger groups, you know, talking about this with another person who knows you well or a couple people who are helping you forward in these areas uh, rather than kind of just public disclosure. Um, I would also say probably discussing these things with someone who's ahead of you spiritually rather than someone who is behind you. Just bearing in mind that the goal is not just commiserating over your sin and shame and guilt, uh, but rather making progress in holiness. And so you want to talk about these things with someone who can help you make progress in holiness. So we need to talk about it. Specifically then, if you're married, talk to your spouse about it. If you're married, You are the primary partner in your spouse's pursuit of purity. Your marriage vows are like a contract to aid one another in holiness. Don't fail on this topic. Um, So pray for your husband or wife in this matter, and and don't fail to ask how they're doing. Of course, we're all sinners, um, so you may be told self-protecting lies, um, or you may be told a very hurtful truth um, if you ask about this topic and bring it up. Uh, But your goal in talking about these things together is mutual pursuit of holiness, which means that you both have to have a greater concern over offenses to God more than you do about offenses to yourself. And yet, sins in this area are offense against a spouse and can be very hurtful. And so... um, 
if you, if you are talking about this and feeling that hurt and experiencing that tension and wondering where to go with this and having a hard time as a couple dealing with these things, I would encourage you then as a couple to seek help as well and probably to do that sooner rather than later. Um, find some trusted friends, some pastoral help, uh, talk with your care group leader or, or something like that. There, but, the, but the point is there has to be discussion, uh, confession, effort toward forgiveness, uh, where needed. Um, so talk to your spouse about this. If you're a parent, talk to your children about these things, about sex in general and pornography in particular. You know, again, this, the, you, know, you, you may want some specific guidance on this, which um, there are lots of good resources for that. Um, if you were interested and don't have some, we could talk about that later. But just in general, have the discussions. Um, age-appropriate, find language that's helpful for uh, their season in life, but talk to them about it. You know, most pornography, again, just kind of referring to some statistics, most pornography is viewed on mobile devices. Um, So some advice for parenting is just, you know, start with a flip phone. It's actually not a, I know know anyone under 18 is hating me right now, but um, (laughs) it's it's not a crazy thing to not have a smartphone. Um, I know, um, which won't be possible for everyone because of, you know, maybe your employment or for some other reason. I, I recognize that. But I, I have a number of friends who are adults who have every freedom to have a smartphone, yet they have intentionally chosen not to. Um, you know, some to avoid pornography in particular and some just to be, avoid being overly immersed in the immediate access to a digital world. I just think we should not think of it as a crazy thing to not have a smartphone. High school students, um, I would guess having a smartphone is like one of the top three desires you have in life. I would just ask you to question yourself. Don't make your parents ask you about this. Just question yourself. Why is that urge so strong uh, in your life? And have you pondered, just kind of reflected on the enormous destructive capacity that you're bringing into your hands with a mobile device, whether in regards to pornography um, or not? Um, and, uh, and then just a word to parents. There's no way to lock down an iPhone. Um, It can't be done. You can put a lot of barriers on there, a lot of barriers and filters, but there are always ways around them. And uh, and your kids, who uh, probably always think they're smarter than you are, on this topic probably are, actually. Um, And, you know, the statistics show that parents are rather naive on this issue and that twice as many kids are looking at pornography as parents who think they are. Um, So just don't be naive. Have these conversations. Uh, Make your relationship with your children an open place to talk about these things. I want to show this clip from uh, Cooper Pinson, who's with Harvest USA, who will will be, uh, I don't think he'll be here with us, but Harvest USA will be with us doing a seminar on Saturday, September 8th, called Gospel Sexuality, Raising Sexually Healthy Kids. Um, So you may want to mark your calendars for that event. Uh, but here's a, a little clip from, uh, from them. So, I, you know, the, the main idea there is just that um, you don't merely want to manage devices, but think about the context in which we have them. You know, this kind of underlying assumption that immediate access to technology and to the Internet in particular is good and worthy. 
We want to challenge that assumption and consider instead how, um, how we can live a freer life, freer to walk in the obedience that God has called us to. Um, so the, the big idea there, again, is, is talk about this. You know, we, we talk about this on staff. Um, among, among the guys on staff, we're regularly asking each other, how are you doing in regards to, uh, to lust and um, trying to walk in obedience in, in that area on all of our staff applications um, so part-time, full-time, internship, all the staff applications for the church. We have a section that says, please comment on your current and recent track record with obeying God in the area of pornography and related forms of sexual sin. If you have sinned in this area, please explain and be specific in regard to frequency, when this sin occurred in the past week, month, year, five years, and what have you done to fight for obedience? Um, maybe you could ask your spouse that question. <laughs> um, not that you'd put it on an application form if you're, if you're thinking about dating, um, but you, you want to know uh, kind of where your brothers and sisters in Christ are on these things, those, those that you're close to, those that you're trying to help forward in holiness. Um, we're trying to do that on the staff here. And we all have covenant eyes on our computers and whatnot. So, the big idea here, again, is, is simply to be intentionally talking about this with others, uh, specifically within your family, spouses and children, uh, and then with other brothers and sisters that you're um, following Christ alongside. Sin is like a cockroach, loves the dark, tends to get crushed when the lights come on, though. Sin withers in uh, publicity, thrives in secrecy. Um, so talk with others about this. Most likely, you, you if you are... Um, regularly looking at pornography, you will not find success in fighting that sin alone, uh, but you'll find it in community. And then a second piece of practical advice is to uh, assess your patterns. So if you, again, if you're looking at porn regularly or you can, if, you're, if you're talking with someone, helping someone who is looking at pornography regularly, um, I assume you, know, you hate that, you feel ashamed about it, you wish you weren't doing that, um, you wish God would do like some spiritual liposuction and just kind of remove that sin immediately from your life. Um, so I, I assume all of that is, is true, but you know it's actually going to require hard work and perhaps some humbling um, on your part. So if that's you, then just some practical advice for you um, is to assess your pattern. Uh, be a student of your own sin and pattern of yielding to temptation. Um, so ask some of these specific questions about uh, your interaction with pornography. First of all, why do you look at pornography? Why do you look at it? Does it seem to promise refuge or escape? Uh, does it promise respect to you, reward or pleasure? Is it just like a quick fix for you? you know? Are you discontent with singleness and porn is an outlet? Are you discontent with marriage and porn is compensation? Uh, One person said, I use porn because my wife doesn't have a rapid desire to meet my needs. You can kind of see the selfishness wrapped up in in that statement. Um, See, at its heart, porn is self-worship. It's indulging your own desires, setting those up as the God to be obeyed rather than uh, the creator's will and intent for our sexuality. It's the construction of a world where my desires reign supreme. Rapid desire to meet my needs reigns supreme. So I would just say, know why. What are the dynamics in your heart that are leading you to pornography? And then think about Scripture for arguing back against those various motivations. You know, work through these hard issues 
with someone who will help you think through them and lead you to a godly imagination. You know, pornography is a, pornography is a sin of imagination, um, constructing a world that suits your needs and desires. So help some, uh, talk with someone who will help you develop a godly imagination where you are trying to conceive of holiness and what a holy life might look like and how joy in God is, uh, is better than these, these kind of cheap thrills of pornography. So why do you look at porn? And then secondly, when do you look at pornography? You know, is this normally something that you're doing at night after your, your roommates or your family has gone to bed? Why are you even up at that point? Why don't you just go to bed at the same time as everyone else? Is this something that you're doing in the middle of the day on a lunch break or when the kids are taking a nap? Or, you know, when, when is this normally happening for you? And are there ways that you can kind of preclude opportunity um, by readjusting your schedule um, or by... You know, as, as the video clip there pointed out, maybe uh, limiting your access so you can't even get to the Internet at those points in the day. Just think about when you look at it. Then third, how do you access porn? You know, just process where, where you're looking at it. Is this on an app? Uh, what device are you using? What website are you going to? Are there ways, again, that you can preclude access to those things, um, removing access to that device, that app, or that website? Of course, no obstacle is perfect, um, but you know the passwords and filters and kind of the work to get around some of these obstacles may be just what you need to help you stay away from that. Um, and then finally, a, a fourth question is how do, you, how do you rationalize porn? So again, if you're looking at pornography, I'm assuming you would say that's something you don't want to do. You wish you weren't doing. Um, so then you're obviously rationalizing it somehow. How are you doing that? Um, how do you talk to yourself about pornography? I'm just going to look at it a little bit. I don't think it's as often as some other people. What are you saying to yourself to make yourself feel better about it? There's a book by a Puritan, uh, Thomas Brooks, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices um, that's very helpful in regards to fighting against sin, where he details out all these ways that the, the devil's uh, devices, all these ways the devil uses to kind of lure us and ensnare us into sin. Rationalizations, really. Um, and then how to bring scripture to bear to fight back and, and to think differently uh, about these things. Uh, I think he's recognizing that um, sin in general, pornography in particular, is about our imagination. It's about our affections uh, that have been trained by uh, these narratives that run through our heads, um, these desires, these affections and imaginations that run through our heads. And so Brooks is showing how the remedy uh, for these false narratives is partly um, rewriting those scripts with biblical versions uh, about what true satisfaction is, um, for instance. So as you think through these questions then, uh, the goal is to address uh, the circumstances in which you normally sin, the motivations, um, the places, the times that you normally sin. You know, fleeing temptation uh, may mean precluding the occasions that actually result in sin. So um, if, you, if you think of a, a circle um, as, you know, there's nothing inherently sinful about stepping within this circle, but you know that for you, as soon as you step inside the circle, you are going to, you will most likely sin. You know, maybe based on his, your history, you know that in this situation, 
uh, given this situation, I will probably sin. Well, then I would say it becomes something more like sin for you to be in that situation. So fleeing temptation probably means precluding all, all of those situations where you normally or where you find yourself most likely uh, to sin. So be a student of your patterns and uh, work to undermine the possibilities. Um, which leads to this third point then, is just make a specific sanctification plan, a strategy for victory. You know, how, how are you going to take kind of those, as you're a student of your patterns, how are you going to take those things and translate it into a, a plan for um, victory in this area? One big idea here about sanctification is from uh, John, John Owen, his book Mortification of Sin. Uh, one, of, one of the big ideas that emerges from that book is, is that uh, Christians should not aim to k- kill one particular sin that troubles you. Um, so if you are aiming at killing one particular sin, pornography, for instance, uh, you're aiming at the wrong thing. He says you, you could want to stop looking at porn uh, because you don't like feeling ashamed you don't like feeling like you're not in control of yourself. You're afraid of getting caught. Any of these reasons. But they're all, all of these things are selfish motivations uh, for discontinuing a sin. So if you aim to get rid of um, just this one particular sin, you may succeed in doing that. And then you would become happy with yourself, also known as self-righteousness. And, and then you'd set yourself up for another failure because the next time you sin, you know, Jesus tells the, the little miniature parable about um, the demon who's evacuated from a house and the house left clean and in order. And so when the demon goes and gets seven friends, they come back and they're like, hey, great, you know. And now you have seven friends uh, with that other demon who are stronger and more cunning than the first. And this is how self-righteousness often works is the point Jesus is making. Um, you're happy with yourself for getting rid of a demon. You're setting yourself up for, um, for eight demons. And if you don't do well, you know, if you, don't, if you set this as your goal to, to get rid of pornography in your life, and then you don't do well, uh, then the result will often be despair that spirals into more sin. Um, and so if you make victory over one troubling sin your goal, you set yourself up for failure. So what does John Owen advise instead? It says, aim not at destroying any one troubling sin, but rather aim at universal holiness. Universal holiness. He says, hatred of sin as sin and a sense of love of Christ and the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Hating sin because it offends God and loving Christ because of what he's done for us in the cross are the dynamics that lie at the root of all true mortification of sin. So this means that just setting up strategies for getting rid of porn is insufficient. Um, So it is a good thing to do. That was point number two. It it is a helpful thing to do, but it is insufficient. There has to be at the same time something like a full spiritual assessment of your life before God. You know, what's what's the health status of your your time uh, in the word and in prayer and in Christian fellowship and participation in the sacraments and uh, and mortification of other sins. You're putting other sins to death. Are there sin patterns that are predominant in other areas in your life that you're not addressing at all that perhaps actually God is more concerned about uh, than he is with this one that troubles you? 
So that's just a, a word of advice about how to kind of setting pornography within the context of an overall pursuit of sanctification and holiness. Owen's larger point is that sin is conquerable. Sin is conquerable, which is a specific way of saying sanctification is possible. Um, your sex drive is not too strong for your will. Um, victory in regards to pornography is actually achievable for Christians. You can live a porn-free life. That's an important thing to say to someone who's struggling with pornography uh, because I think many who are pinned down by uh, pornography, um, a porn-free life feels unattainable, unimaginable to think of my life as free from that. But if you believe that the gospel is true, then you have to believe that sin is conquerable. You have to believe that the power of sin has been put to death and the power of the Spirit has been brought to bear in your life. And thus sin, pornography, is, is conquerable. So it's true, there is no silver bullet for sanctification. Um, I think that's why, as a community, we should extend grace to those who are struggling with pornography Um, We assume we want victory in this area, so you don't want to minimize the sin and the damage that it may cause. But, you know, recognizing that there are addictive-like sorts of dynamics here that will take time to escape from, and there's no silver bullet. God uses a variety of things. Think about sins that you've conquered in your own life. If we were to tell those stories among us, we would all cite different kinds of things as to what God used to help us uh, gain victory. Um, that said, I, I think, you know, some advice, if you just want like a next step, study your own patterns would be one of those pieces of advice. Another piece of advice I'd give you is memorize Romans 8 and read Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Um, if you're helping someone walk through this, I uh, couldn't think of a better resource than Mortification of Sin and memorizing Romans 8. Um, there's many other things you could do. I don't think of that as a silver bullet, but, um, But it's certainly Romans 8 presents kind of a summary of some of the big dynamics of living a spirit-powered life in regards to sanctification. And uh, I'm sure you're all thankful we don't have time for interaction on this topic this morning. Um, Started a few minutes late, and here we are. So um, maybe I can pray for us and uh, pray for freedom and purity, and, and then you can be dismissed.